Luke 16, found on page 1625, if you're using the Pew Bible in front of you. Luke 16, God's word given to us, his people, for our good. Luke 16, verses 1 through 13, let us give our attention to God's holy and inspired word. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What now shall I do? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, How much do you owe my master? Eight hundred gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 400. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone... You will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, Or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of the Lord endures forever. Amen. Before we hear and gather around the word, let us go to God in a time of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your many blessings. We thank you for your grace that you have extended to us in our salvation. We thank you for the grace that you continue to give us in the leading and the governing of this church for raising up these four men whom we have installed today. Father, we thank you for them. We ask that you would protect them. We ask that you would protect uh, all the elders and the deacons and their lives, their profession, protect their godliness and Father, spur them along in their pursuit of it. May they together lead this congregation by an example of holiness, by an example of seeking your glory in our lives. And Father, together, might we join in the power of your Spirit, being a community of believers that is united for you and for your glory. Father, we have many requests that we would bring before you today. We ask that it would all be in a spirit of faith and trust. We ask that you would give all of us a greater capacity to trust in you. 
And Father, that you would be honored and glorified uh, in our lives. We pray for Dexter Borsma, who continues his long road of recovery. We ask that you would strengthen and uphold him. We ask that you would come alongside his family as they care for him. We ask for uh, grace and protection and healing to be given to Matthew Hawk, who underwent an operation this past week. We ask for a quick recovery. We ask that you would come alongside him. We thank you that the surgery was successful. And we ask that you uh, would comfort him now. Father, we thank you for uh, protecting Marilyn Hannenberg with a recent operation as well. We ask for a smooth recovery. And we ask uh, that you would comfort her today. Give her a Sabbath's blessing. Father, we thank you for uh, seeing through our uh, brother David Knott this past week. And Father, we pray that the steps that are being taken would be the right ones for him and for his health. And Father, uh, we thank you for the, uh, the doctors and the nurses who uh, were attending to him and will continue attending to him and monitoring, uh, monitoring his health. Father, we give all of these things into your hands. There are other things that are weighing our hearts down. There are uh, problems of emotion, problems of the soul. There are physical problems that are ongoing and seem to never end. So Father, hear our prayer as we cry out as a people who are longing for the restoration of all things, who are longing to see the face of our Savior who will one day stand upon the earth. Father, give us centrally, foundationally, the hope that is laid up for us in heaven. And may that give shape to all that we do. May you be honored as we look to your word today. May it build us up. And may you send us out in the grace of Christ for your honor and for your glory. Amen. Well, there's a a pastor from whom I've learned a lot in his preaching and in his ministry. He was preaching through the book of Luke and he somehow was able to time it perfectly so that the last sermon that he preached in his consecutive time through Luke before he took a call to go elsewhere was the prodigal son, which is perhaps the most enjoyable and best passage to preach in all of scripture. And somehow in his wisdom, he was able to just miss preaching this passage, which is in many ways confusing and disorienting. And I knew that I had found that out this past week, and I knew that there was no time for me to cut and run in any way. So here we are looking at this passage, and I believe that we will find God's blessing as we do so. You know, parents are always looking for responsible role models for their children. And they're always looking for those they can point to and they can say to their children, look at that person and their exemplary character. You want to be able to trust that they will be able to emulate them and model the character that they're seeing in their role models. And we ask ourselves, is Jesus doing the exact opposite here? Is he pointing us to someone who's a bit of a scoundrel? And is he saying, you should emulate that character and you should be like him. 
Of course, that wouldn't make any sense, biblically speaking, so we know that that is not what Jesus is doing. In fact, this manager in this parable shows for us someone whose life can be transformed when there is a new reality that intrudes upon their lives. Someone who is given a new purpose, a new central reality, uh, or someone who is given a new reality, their life can be shaped by a new Purpose. And that's what this manager teaches us in this parable today. Here is our central truth for this morning. The new reality of the kingdom of God, which intrudes upon our lives in the gospel, gives us a new purpose. Very simple. The new reality of the kingdom of God gives us a new purpose. Here's how that central truth transforms our lives. The eternal life realities of the kingdom of God shape the way that we steward the, the goods that are given to us. The eternal life realities of the kingdom of God shape the way that we steward the goods that are entrusted to us. When the realities of the kingdom of God intrude upon our lives, the things that are only temporarily at our disposal become things that we can use for the advancement and the enjoyment of God's kingdom and shapes the way that we think about our temporary goods and those things that are entrusted to us. We'll look at this parable, this passage of scripture, as we talk about three themes, and they are this, they are these. First, we have a confusing parable, so we'll unpack it and we'll try to decipher the meaning of it, and we trust that the Lord will give grace as we do. A confusing parable, a convicting lesson A convicting lesson to take home from this parable. And then finally, confronting grace. We are confronted by the grace of God within this parable. And that is what transforms our lives. So let's unpack this passage of scripture together. We see the two main characters in this parable. The master and the manager. The master is a rich man. And as many rich people, it's their prerogative not only to enjoy their one big house, but many big houses. And so when he leaves his estate, he entrusts it to the work of his manager. But this manager is accused of squandering the wealth and the riches of his master. That word squandering shows up in this part of the Gospel of Luke. It connects us back to the parable of the prodigal son who was squandering the inheritance that he had received. So this introduces a crisis in the life of the manager. All of a sudden, his life completely changes by the realization of the reality that he will not have this job forever. It's a temporary arrangement. And so this forces him to think critically. This forces him to act decisively. Notice in verses 2 and 3 and 4, there are three different ways that stated this job of the manager is coming to an end. It's not going to be there forever. So by verse 4, he knows what he's going to do. And in verse 5, his plan is put into action. It's the urgency of the situation that forces him to find and think of a solution. We can all probably relate to that. Isn't it amazing as a student how much paper writing efficiency skyrockets the night before the paper is due? And isn't it interesting how much more quickly the house can be cleaned 90 minutes before the guests arrive for dinner? And so this manager is handed, in a sense, the pink slip of uh, the end of his job. And 
he then goes to the people who owe his master money. It's interesting, isn't it, that he acts within his own interests. But in doing so, he's able to, as the passage tells us, he is able to make friends or to gain friends. So he's talking to these debtors who owe his master money. And the first one, he cuts the debt in half. He cuts the debt in half. It's it's an astounding discount that he's given. And then the second one, it's not as big as cutting in half. It's about uh, 20%. Some have suggested that what actually happens here is the manager is cutting out his own commission in the deal. And that is why the master is pleased with him. There's really no evidence for that within the passage. So it seems better to understand that the manager is acting here with something that would be understood as within the responsibilities of his job. Back then, managers who who managed all of the estate of a rich man would have the authority to make these kinds of deals, but it would be given to the master to decide whether or not he is pleased with what his manager has done. And that brings us to another thing that really sort of disorients us in this parable because we're thinking that the master is going to further condemn the manager for closing these deals and cutting the debt by so much. But then we read that the master commends the manager. That's a quick overview of what happens. We're left with the question of how do we make sense of it? It raises all kinds of questions in our minds, doesn't it? Why? Does the master commend the manager? And then why does it seem like Jesus commends the manager? Are we supposed to act in these sorts of ways? Because, again, we read the parable, we feel like this manager is a bit of a scoundrel, don't we? Are we supposed to act in these ways? How can there possibly be a lesson here for us? Or what am I missing? Again, we unpack this carefully, and what we see is the manager provides for us a picture of transformation when your life is encircled around a a new reality that gives you new purpose. But first, a couple of things that are probably sticking out in our minds as we read through this passage. The first is what Jesus says in verse 8. He says, The sons of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind or their own generation than are the sons of light. What that tells us is that we are to, if there's any lesson to be gained from this parable, it's going to happen by way of analogy. Jesus isn't giving us some kind of strategy in how we do our business dealings. We are to think about this man, this manager, as a son of this age, understand what he is doing and why he is doing it, and then by analogy connect it to the kingdom of God and to our lives. Something else that probably sticks out is towards the end of this parable, he is called what? He is called the dishonest manager. And the word there is probably better translated the unrighteous manager. One thing that that, uh, we would suggest is that, well actually a couple things, and the first is this. It's more likely that his title, the dishonest manager, refers back to what happened at the beginning of the parable. His squandering of the wealth of the rich master. And so it doesn't talk about what he does in response to losing his job. Rather, it speaks of what goes on at the beginning of the parable. And then here's something else that could be what is going on here. It's probably a little bit more of a suggestion. But 
as we wrestle with how to translate this, this uh, phrase, the dishonest manager, it really uh, occurs literally as the manager of unrighteousness. So the question becomes, is it unrighteousness that is the characteristic with which this manager acts? Is that part of his character in response to what happens when he finds out he's losing his job? Or is it a title that points specifically to the transformation that he experiences when he is shaped by this new reality? In other words, that which once controlled the manager... Money, right? He acted in the interest of gaining as much money as he could. He's squandering wealth. That which once controlled him, he now can use for a greater purpose. He's able to leave money on the table so that he achieves a greater purpose, which is finding friends who will remember him when he loses his job and when his money is gone. But either way, Jesus is not commending and he is not telling us to act with dishonesty. Because that is not uh, what the manager is doing by the end of the parable. So what is the lesson? What is the convicting lesson that comes forth from this parable? We see that the manager is actually acting in a way that is totally different at the end of the parable than he was at the beginning as it relates to money. All of a sudden, when he realizes, I'm going to lose this job, uh, this, this cushy job that I've had, I'm going to lose it, it's going to be gone. All of a sudden, he's not stockpiling cash. That's not what he is worried about. Rather, he's, what's more important to him is building relationships that will be able to sustain him when his money and his job fails. He's commended for acting shrewdly. Now, that's another word that we read and we, we feel like there's a bit of a negative connotation to it. There's really no reason for that. This is the word for wisdom. He's acting wisely. Wisdom is an ability to perceive and to understand how things fit together relative to the existence of God and his character in this world. And so the manager is acting here with wisdom. Wisdom to be able to see beyond what is just in front of him. And that's the great transformation that the, master experience, or that the manager experiences. At the beginning of the parable, he puts everything at risk, his job, his relationships, his reputation, so that he can enjoy the money that so controls him. But by the end, he's not acting that way at all. So he goes from a squanderer to shrewd. He goes from wasteful to wise. He goes from condemnation to commendation. He goes from punishment to praise. That's where we begin to see the analogy for us and for God's people in this passage. Because to belong to the kingdom of God, now remember the manager is a son of this age, so we have to make the connections by way of analogy, it's not a one-to-one. But to belong to the kingdom of God is to be shaped and to be gripped by the reality of the impermanence of our situation. It's not going to last forever. It's going to come to an end and that shapes the way that we use that which is temporarily under our control. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. This manager, in a surprising way, acts with wisdom 
with understanding, with perception, with insight that he did not have before. He is shaped and he is gripped by this reality. It's not going to be there forever. So we ask ourselves, brothers and sisters, do we show a measure of this kind of wisdom in our own lives? Perhaps what's, what's convicting for us is that Jesus says it's the sons of this age who are able to perceive into some of these things and act accordingly. The sons of light too often show that they cannot be reoriented day in and day out to this ultimate reality. We need to be disoriented to the realities of what we think we know and reoriented to the realities of the kingdom. Martin Luther said this. He said, we must use all things upon earth in no other way than as a guest who travels through the land and comes to a hotel where he must lodge overnight. To have and understand that there's a passing relationship with the things of this world. Paul had a, a deep desire that the, the people under his care would be shaped by this reality. A good re- example of this is Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 where Paul speaks of the hope that is laid up for us in heaven. He wants that to be the central, new, defining reality of their lives. And it, and it is to give them a new purpose. So he engages in prayer for the believers in Colossians and he says this, I pray that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. The wisdom and understanding is to spring forth from having the hope that is laid up for us in heaven being our foundation. Then he says this, so that you might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Isn't that amazing that as sinners who are saved by grace, as people who so often show forth our imperfections and all the things that we struggle with, even still, Paul, with the knowledge of all that and being shaped by the gospel at the center of his life, he can say those who walk in the power of the Spirit, those who are shaped by the hope that is laid up for us in heaven, might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Paul, his prayer is that the hope laid up for us in heaven would fill our minds, would fill our consciousness, and that it would shape the way that we live and shape the way that we steward that which is entrusted to us. Namely, of course, wealth. So that brings us to the command that Jesus gives us. He says, I tell you. Use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. What does Jesus mean by this? Well, of course, we know that he's not saying what you need to do is you need to find as many people as possible who will be enjoying the kingdom of God so that when you die, you can have a bunch of people up there vouch for you and they will get you in. Kind of like enough people that you know on the VIP list and they can make sure you you get in. That's not what Jesus is saying at all, right? We know that that flies in the face of what salvation is according to all of scripture. But what we need to do is think about it this way. The goods of this world are temporary and they're only temporarily under our control. But the family of God is eternal. All those who know Christ all of those who stand forgiven in him and clothed with his righteousness by faith, all of those who are joined to his church, part of the fellowship of believers, we will enjoy 
God and God's presence together as the family of God for all eternity. And so the call upon our lives is to see and to perceive the reality of that and allow that to shape the way that we live, allow that to to shape the way that we steward that which is entrusted to us. The family of God is eternal. Our earthly wealth is not. And so earthly wealth becomes subservient to the family of God. We ask ourselves, what are the ways in which we can bless? What are the ways in which we can enrich the family of God while we are on this earth? Why? Not so that we can get into heaven by our works, but so that God might be glorified today and on the last day when his name is vindicated and we see that the people of God shared this abundant supernatural love for each other. That is a direct calling and perhaps another calling from this passage is not just that we would share with those who already are the family of God, but that we would share with those who are not yet the family of God. That we might show forth an abundant and a gracious and a generous love to all those whom God brings into our lives so that we might love those who are strangers to become neighbors and that our neighbors would become the family of God. Loving strangers into neighbors and neighbors into the family of God. Practicing something that I came across in the last couple of weeks in a book that is called Radically Ordinary Hospitality. Listen to what the author Rosaria Butterfield says, those who live out radically ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs at all. And that's something that we need to remind ourselves of. All the things that we have, are they really really ours or are they God's? Their homes not as theirs at all, but God's gift to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. They open doors, they seek out the underprivileged, they know that the gospel comes with a house key. Living out radically ordinary hospitality leaves us with plenty to share because we intentionally live below our means. We do that so that blessing, so that love, so that generosity might flourish because we have been shaped by the new reality of the kingdom of God that has intruded our lives and given us a new purpose. You know, studies that come back ask the question, how is it that someone comes from outside the church And they enter the church, they're truly converted, and they remain faithful. Because that becomes a big question in today's world, too. You see a lot of people who want to try to affiliate with the Christian church. They're there for a little while, it doesn't work out, and they leave. The studies have been done. Uh, What becomes of someone who converts and who actually sticks with it? How did they come into the church? Most often, what happens is that those who cross the threshold of a church, whether it be a beautiful building like this, a storefront, a house, a cave, those who cross the the, the threshold of the church have come in there because they have been shaken to the core in seeing how a Christian or a group of Christians have loved in such a way so as to make them think there must be something to this message. God must be real, that the people of God are so shaped by this reality and are so called to this love and they fervently serve their Lord in how they have been called to live with this abundant love. And so they're open to the message as they come in. And then it's the the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. God is working sovereignly through all of that. But God is a God of means, and oftentimes we see that is how people are brought into the church. See, it's not about being a fancy apologist 
a very gifted evangelist, we know that not everyone in the church can have the exact right answer at the exact right moment if you're dialoguing about your faith. Most ministers struggle with having the exact right answer at the exact right moment. But it's the ability to love people in the abundant way to which Christ has loved us. And then when given opportunity, we can say, Christ changed me. The gospel changed me. It's given me a new purpose. It's, it, the new reality of that has formed the way that I live. And I know that I need Christ daily. And I need the church as well. Loving strangers into neighbors. And neighbors into family of God. In the last four verses round out, uh, they all relate to each other, arguing from the lesser to the greater. If you are faithful with small and temporary things, or if you are not faithful with small and temporary things, why would anyone expect you to be faithful with big and eternal and true and lasting things? The point that Jesus makes is that the, the, the little things in our lives, how we act in relation to those, that betrays the condition of our hearts will always act relative to the condition of our hearts. So if we actually grasp the implications of eternity, if we actually grasp the eternal life that God gives to us in Christ, then we will act in a way that resonates with that. And I heard recently, I thought it was so well put, that if you hear the gospel and you do not think that it is the greatest news you have ever heard, you can be sure that you have not correctly understood it. If you hear it and you don't immediately think that it's the best news you've ever heard, you can be sure that you have not correctly understood it. And so the question becomes, do we prioritize the things in our life accordingly? Are we mastered by money, as the manager was at the beginning of the story, as the prodigal son was at the beginning of his parable? Mastered by money, or have you brought all things under the mastery of Jesus Christ? It's a convicting lesson, isn't it? It's a convicting lesson. But the good news, brothers and sisters, is that all things, the life to which we're called, the salvation that is given to us, it all happens in the realm of grace. You see, it's subtle, but all throughout this parable, what is reigning over it is the grace of the master. The grace of the master. And it is that grace that confronts us. And it's that grace that must transform us. Perhaps you noticed I, I left something that was sort of glaring. I, I, I didn't tie up a loose end because as the manager is commended by the master, probably some of you noticed that, it, well, in the parable, something is missing there, right? Because it's not as if the manager is being generous with his own money. He's forgiving debt that is owed to his master. It's someone else's money. It's someone else's riches. And so our hearts cry out for the, for the injustice of the situation. We say, no, no, this guy's a scoundrel. And in doing so, what Luke subtly reveals to us is that our hearts so often are like the Pharisees. Look at who it is that scoffs at this parable right after it's the Pharisees. The Pharisees scoff at, at this teaching of Jesus. Why? Because they scoff at grace because they have not remembered that it belongs to the master alone to decide whether or not he will pronounce a judgment of blessing, a judgment of con condemnation or commendation. It belongs to the master alone. Also important to remember that in ways that we probably don't always realize 
we are put in a situation that is much like the manager. That which is entrusted to us, so often it feels like it's truly ours. We work hard, we're wise with our money, but isn't it true, brothers and sisters, that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, that it all belongs to him anyways? And so, yes, the manager is generous with the master's money, but that provides a lesson for us as well. Because all the things that are entrusted to us ultimately uh, belong to our master. Also interesting that in this parable, the word for master is just the word for Lord. And all throughout the Gospel of Luke, that word, Lord, the Greek word kurios, that is bringing us again and again to the God who saves by his grace in his Son, who is Christ the Lord. Belongs to him to pronounce a judgment of condemnation or commendation. And so often, God is fuller of grace than our hearts are. Because we too often are like the Pharisees. And we need to remember that it is God alone who can pronounce judgment. You know, if we're faithful in the little things, God can entrust his people to be faithful in the bigger things. Isn't it interesting that we have this picture of the manager who is showing forth Uh, 50% forgiveness, proclaiming 50%, 20% forgiveness here and there, handing it out, and it strikes us as completely unjust. But have we considered the kind of forgiveness that we find in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Is it 50% forgiveness? Is it 20% forgiveness? Or in the gospel, is it 100% forgiveness for now and for all time. You see, the grace of the master reigns in this passage, and it's only the grace of the master that allows the manager to flourish, to be transformed, and the same is true in our lives, brothers and sisters, that we need the grace of our master in order to be transformed and to have our lives shaped by the reality of his kingdom. You see, that message, the message of the gospel as it goes forth into the world will be much more dynamic if God's people are stewarding their temporary goods in a way that reflects that they have received eternal forgiveness, that they have received eternal and heavenly salvation. Yes, the manager is an imperfect figure, But isn't it true, brothers and sisters, that all of us are imperfect? Isn't that the point of the gospel? That God saves sinners and God gives us the opportunity to steward that which is is entrusted to us for the advancement of the kingdom of God, for the enjoyment of the kingdom of God. Isn't it amazing that God bounds, uh, that he binds his glory to our enjoyment of him? God could have made it so that the greatest result of his glory was the worst possible result for us. But look at the grace of the master who says the best result of his glory is the best result of your enjoyment of his kingdom. We live by his grace. We're transformed by his grace. And it's his grace that compels us to live with the new purpose of these new realities that come by the kingdom. So live in his grace and be transformed by his grace. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you praise and honor and adoration. We are so thankful for the grace that you show to us. Father, as we are shaped by the realities of the kingdom of God that come to us in and through the gospel, 
Father, might you impress upon our hearts the new purpose that that gives us in our lives. And Father, by your spirit and by your gospel grace, may you give us the courage to act in light of it. We thank you for blessing this church with elders and deacons. We thank you for blessing this church with members, faithful servants of you and your cause in this world. Keep us together always for your honor and for your glory. May we stand upon your truth and may we stand nowhere else. Father, give us courage to the work that you give to us for your glory. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.